I do not want to see anybody like hard as uh, nobody on the streets. I don't like it. I don't want to see people struggling like we did. Welcome to the Telling It Our Way podcast. I'm Becca. And I'm Allie. And in this podcast, we bring you stories by disabled people about disabled people. Stories from the daily lives of self-advocates with intellectual and developmental disabilities. These are real people with complicated lives. They don't want your pity and they don't exist to inspire you. This is not inspiration porn. So Allie, today we're talking about home. You know, where the heart is and all that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are. But I think sometimes home is a little bit more complicated for folks with intellectual developmental disabilities. Yeah, why do you say that? You know, it wasn't until 1999 that folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities truly got a lot more rights in terms of choosing where they wanted to live, who they wanted to live with, how they wanted to live. And that came with what we refer to as the Olmstead decision, um, which is the U.S. Supreme Court 1999 decision, which was so excited when they passed it because they said you could not justify the segregation of people with disabilities, that it was unlawful to do that. It says that people with disabilities must be able to receive their services in an integrated setting appropriate to their needs. Right. So when we're talking about segregation, we're talking institutions. We're talking nursing homes. We're talking places where people don't have rights to make decisions for themselves. Are you familiar with the burrito test? What's the burrito test? Okay. So so this is all of you at home. You can do the burrito test yourself. So how the burrito test works is, Allie. Are you able to wake up at 4 a.m. and make yourself a burrito if you want to? Waking up at 4 a.m. is the hard part. Make the burrito, yes. Yeah, I think I could probably do it at 4 a.m. Yeah. Then you are not living in an institution. Awesome! (laughs) So the way that this works is, are there kind of arbitrary rules around your schedule, around access to the kinds of foods you want to eat, the kinds of things you want to do? If other people kind of control those things in your life, then it's possible that you're living in an institution. So that's the burrito test. So even if, let's say, you're just living with a few other people, if there are still rules around those kinds of things, and that means you really don't have autonomy over how you want to live and who you're living with. Exactly, yeah. Well, I think the Olmstead decision was really important for establishing that. And one of the things that we found out once we passed the Olmstead decision and started moving people out of these institutions was that actually when people get a chance to hire who they want to help care with them, right, that is actually cheaper. It's mm-hmm. cheaper for the state dollars. So not oh. only is it the morally and ethically right thing to do, but it actually saves our state's money. Oh, it's much, much less expensive. So there's a, a great um, set of data called the Residential Information Systems Project, which comes from the University of Minnesota. And this is this kind of long longitudinal study that covers people who receive long-term supports and services and talks about the kinds of places that they live. So these are people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's, it's not everyone. It's a kind of a small slither of that population. But what we know right now is that 60% of people with intellectual disabilities who receive these services live with a family member. 11% live in their own home. 5% live with a host family or a foster family. And these are adults that we're talking about. Sure. Um, 6% live in a group setting with three or less people. 10% live with 
between four and six other people. And then we get into those big institutional settings. So 4% live with people between seven and 15 other people. 2% live in facilities with 16 or more people. And then 2% are living permanently in nursing homes or psychiatric facilities. And I think that last um, adjective permanently is really important because sometimes people benefit from short stays in a more institutional facility. Maybe it's because they have complicated health needs that just need to be looked after for a while, and that's the safest place for them. But the permanently adjective is really important when Mm -hmm. we're talking about choice and choice about where you live. Well, that was the heart of the Olmstead Act, right? I mean, so the Olmstead decision, it was about two women with intellectual disabilities who went in for short-term psychiatric care and then weren't allowed to leave. And that was the basis for the lawsuit that made its way to the Supreme Court. And in the disability justice community, we talk about that as the a system of incarceration, right? Incarceration without a crime, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I think that's really a great way to frame it. Yeah, so there's this great tagline people use now. It's it's in our homes, not nursing homes, right? And I think that's a great kind of foundational way to think about belonging in your community. So we've got a couple stories about home today. I know people don't just want to hear about us blathering on statistics, right. even we'll though it's fascinating. S- we'll stop with the statistics, everyone. We get it. Our first story is coming from a couple whose names are Becca and Derek, who are going to share a little bit about the home that they had and then the home that they lost, a, a difficult period in their life where they were experiencing homelessness. So that's a content warning for all of you listening. This story does feature homelessness and it also features a, a disability slur. And so if that makes you uncomfortable, I'd skip ahead by about eight minutes. All right, let's listen. My name is Rebecca Dickerson, and I'm married to Derek Dickerson for four and a half years. Well, we met with like uh, at the baseball game, the Special Olympics baseball game, and we uh, I was at school with her, but we we liked each other, but we didn't get together until the final when I met met her up again in the baseball game. I was renting a house of my aunt's house, and it was I loved the house. I was going to buy it, and and then I, I met Becca, and then I had her moved in, and then that's what day went gone after that. And it was great. It was nice, and it was something to live in. Something to lay my head every night and every day if I had to. It was nice to uh, find somebody who loves me for who I am and who accepts my disability and accepts me of being uh, his boys as two stepmoms. And I love being with Derek. We went down to North Carolina for vacation to see my uh, sister and my brother. We came home in September. A tree fell in our backyard and left us without lights. And we were we got thrown out of our uh, house. 
I was homeless for a while. You know, I, that wasn't a good place to be. And I was cold and all that and scared. I'm trying to figure out where, where are we supposed to stay with my kid that I thought it was my fault. But I just, at least I had my family with me inside me and we still good and trying to survive. They made me upset. And then and they had to try clean up everything, we would try to pack up everything as quick as possible. Then it wasn't very good because she was, it got dark and couldn't see anything. And then we had to keep going back to get more stuff. And then we had to left stuff behind because she had to kick us and we had to go back and clean up the house and back up normal. But it's just hard and me having they what she did to us. A lot we lost, and it's hard to replace right now. But we're making meets end right now and trying to get everything back what we lost. We had to leave a bunch of all our furniture, our uh, some of our clothing, and some of our other belongings, what was precious to us. Because she was sitting there calling us all kinds of names and using the R word, the, uh, being a retard and everything, and we didn't know how to do nothing for ourselves. We always had to depend on other people to do for us. We had an argument with my aunt, and she got in my face. She tells me I should have been de dead and not alive, and then made me not happy with that at all. We left, we left, we left, and we slipped on the streets in a car, and it was almost like a street. But we had to sleep in cars for for a while, then place to place. And that was trying to find a place where we could park and sleep. But it was not easy. And who was with you? My niece, my nephew. My sister, my brother, and my two two dogs felt like I was not a person, and then I, we we had to uh, ask churches for help to survive, like for food and sometimes for shelter. Yeah, we just asked for church and all that, go to hotels and they help us pay, get a hotel and all that and food. But it's just, it just was hard. I and mean, plus, we tried to get them on like, uh, like shelters and they couldn't take us because we had to, they didn't want to split up the family because they was going to have us on the one side and then us there on the other side. But it, was, it won't take no dogs and they tell us we had to get rid of our dogs. And, didn't want to do that. I just had to suffer out there what we had to do until we survived. It was very, very hard to rest, to keep your mind occupied because you don't know where you're going to sleep the next day or anything, or you're not going to know where you're going to eat and get your next meal from or anything. And it was very hard for us to figure it out. But we all worked together and uh, tried to get the, uh, where we could get where we could get food and help at. 
and uh, showers and stuff. Yeah, it was like, I want to say it is cold, but cold. We had to uh, take turns sleeping off and on. Just we stayed and walk around. We couldn't, I didn't sleep at all. We didn't, we had to try to, can I keep comfortable? We just had to make sure everybody got sleep and we had to take turns walking around in the cold. But it was cold, I was frozen, almost frozen. My niece at school asked my sister if we needed a place to stay and my sister said yes. So my sister offered to get this house for all of us to live in. It's, uh, it was warm, and we got a place to live, uh, sleep, and it's just it's like a wonderful little change to try to everything, get our lives back together. And I love the house. It's just it's a lot of work, but it's still a house. At least we had a house in the garage, putting my stuff in. Try to get back together, try to get stuff back together and do what I have to do and go back to normal. Um, lost my job when I, um, when I got homeless because they just didn't want no, nobody from homeless to work there. And I wasn't happy when they let me go. And I didn't still looking for, <laughs> trying to find, to, to get back to normal. But it, until then, it would be all right. It would get there. I do not want to see anybody like our, dis uh, nobody on the streets. I don't like it. I don't want to see people struggling like we did. People with disabilities. It's the same thing. I just don't want nobody being in our shoes, having our, sh our shoes. Don't want to have them just find help, you know. Do what you got to do, fight until you get your rights to them. Try to get everything back to normal. Try to not, not throw it over the bone, just try to fight until you find a place. Stay healthy. Yeah, stay healthy and keep family together. Thank you, Derek and Becca, for that story. So I did a little bit more research about this, and, and we don't have great statistics around this, but it, it seems like between 30 and 40 percent of unhoused people have some si sort of cognitive impairment, which includes things like intellectual disability, but also things like traumatic brain injury. So that's a huge proportion, right? That's much, much larger than just the statistics of people with cognitive impairments in the general population. Yeah, 30 to 40 percent. That means if you're in the industry that's working with unhoused people, you have to take into account how it is you're delivering information. Is it accessible to folks? Because we're working with folks with a different set of needs. Right, exactly. And so I, I looked at this systematic review by Michael Brown and Edward McCain from 2020. And what it said is that it's really hard to identify intellectual disability in unhoused populations. So a lot of people get kind of looked over in terms of, of getting access to support. And people are more likely, people with intellectual disabilities are more likely to be homeless if they are black or if they are male or if they've dropped out of high school or if they have kind of other experience with issues like substance abuse or, or mental health issues. 
And then also if their caregiver has passed away. And so if you're living at home with an aging parent and that parent passes away, there's a real vulnerability there that that is sometimes a, a moment in which people experience their support system kind of dropping out completely. And I think that's one of the really hard things that families wrestle with and worry about in the long term when they have someone with an intellectual or developmental disability in their family worrying about what care might look like for them in the long term, especially if that person wants to live within the larger family, right? They want to live either in an apartment with a family member or adjacent to, right? And like, how does, what does that care look like? Yeah. The kind of continuity of care as people age is a really big issue in this field. Yeah. But I want to hear another story about home. Do we have another one? (laughs) Uh, We do, Becca. (laughs) We definitely have another one. So our next story um, comes from Christopher, and he's telling us what he likes about his current home, including those places to which he can walk, uh, which can often be difficult because housing for disabled people or low-income people, it's often not walkable. And uh, those places that are near walkable entities are often too expensive for renters on a fixed income. So here, Christopher lays out what is most important to him about where he's living. I live here in Skadel. It was on a, I live in this house for a couple months of years. I live here with mom and God, of course, my three. It's nice over here. It's a right-sized house. I like my bedroom. I have the clothes of me and my friends on the wall. I got a sticky pillow and written the music. I got a big chair in my room. That I sit and watch TV. I can watch movies. I make some of the rules in my heart. I have clothes. I make my own bed. I need to go outside and run out the grass. I don't like that. I like my neighborhood. Everyone is very nice around here. I can walk to buy a muscle. I can walk to work. Mom, take me to the city too. And I can walk home. A percent is he has it down for my heart. A percent is a grocery store. We go shopping to buy things that we need. I like that. I can walk to a percent. I go there to get stuff for mom. I like going to the parking lot and watching the drugs. It keeps me busy. I go every day that I can. The people that work at Abbasans know me 
Thank you so much to Christopher for that story. I don't live on the West Coast, so I'm not 100% clear on what a smash burger is, Becca, but I'm sure that you can tell me. But it does seem like an important entity to be able to walk to. And it's so important that housing is walking, you know, is near walking places like grocery stores and coffee shops. Something that Christopher does not mention is being able to walk to a library or a recreational center, which also seems important. Places where people can gather, disabled or not, right? Um, mm-hmm. And places that aren't segregated. Well, first of all, um, I, unfortunately, I can't explain to you what a smash burger is because I'm a lifelong vegetarian. <laughs> so I've been near a smash burger, but I've certainly never eaten one. But the, the thing that I think really strikes me about Christopher's story is when he describes his home, he doesn't, he doesn't just describe the building, right? He no. doesn't just describe his bedroom or something like that, though that features in the story. But his home is the neighborhood that he lives in. It's the people that he's connected to. And all of those things are just as important as what's inside the house and the the kind of rights and responsibilities he has as a person who lives in in that place. What's so great about Christopher's story is that I can, as he's telling it, I can see him walking around the neighborhood and interacting with people. Like it's very, like I feel like I'm at home as he's telling about his home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've I've walked to that coffee shop with Christopher before, and it, it is, you know, everyone in that neighborhood knows him. Everyone says hello. It's it's a really kind of special experience to to be in a place where everyone feels interdependent. You know, it used to be when we had, when most people lived in smaller towns and smaller communities before the Industrial Revolution, you know, we had that feeling, I mean, supposedly, right, um, of being a part of something larger. And so, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s in the United States, the way we took care of folks that couldn't be cared for by their families that needed extra support were in almshouses, right? And those almshouses were the center of town, and they were supported by the community, and everyone knew who lived there. It wasn't like a surprise. Everyone knew, like, oh, okay, there's Gary or Hyacinth, or I'm trying to think of, like, an old colonial first name. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And it wasn't until we, we... went into bigger cities and then we started to build large institutions and then we put those institutions outside of cities and far off on train lines in upstate New York that it became a lot more unusual for people to interact with folks with disabilities in their daily life right Mm -hmm. and we know that interacting with all kinds of folks makes us a stronger culture yeah yeah absolutely right and I think you know the conclusion we've been drawing on these last couple episodes is the topic that we're talking about is so much more expansive than even what we think, right? Family is bigger than we think. Community is bigger than we think. Home is bigger than we think. And so thinking more expansively about all of these things that are important to us gives us a way to think about different ways of interacting with ourselves and our communities. 
Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Does that make sense? That makes sense to that me. That feels like a conclusion. All right. Let us know, you guys. Let us know if that makes sense to you. <laughs> Send us a message. So before we end, we want to thank our contributors, Becca, Derek, and Christopher, and our associate producer, Connor Smenner, and our Telling It Our Way advisory board members, Jorita Fox, Quinn Thomas, and Gavin Daly. And special thanks to WGTE and our producer, Chris Pfeiffer. To access transcripts for the show and any other show notes, please visit wgte.org slash our way. You can also send us a message by visiting there as well. So we'd love to hear from you. I'm Allie Day. And I'm Becca Monch-Leon. And you've been listening to Telling It Our Way. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.